So hope you guys are going to catch all that kind of stuff. There we go. All right. Now, thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. We're going to head into the sermon, okay? So I hope you guys are ready, and if you could clock me back there, okay? All right. Are we switched over? Did I get all that? I want to do something here. This is a, we're pushing a pause button on what we've been doing in Revelation. Uh, we actually will get back to it again in February because we've got something we're doing now for Christmas, which is special. And then in January, we've got a, a really interesting, very different thing that we're going to be doing for the month of January that's really going to be interesting. So uh, stay tuned for that. But, but sticking with today and just these two sermons that we're doing for, for Christmas, I want you to consider something. When you think about Jesus. When you, when you have a, you know, when you think about Jesus, most of us will have some image that comes to mind. I don't mean that the image is the point. What I mean is, is that we'll have, when we think about him, there'll be an image that can capture the spirit of what we think. Catch the drift? So I'm not saying when you imagine what Jesus looks like, but I'm saying when you think about Jesus, if you were to put a picture to it, what's the picture? What's it look like? And I want to suggest to you that there's some possibilities, right? Uh, they might not be on the screen. <laughs> Let me know when you're ready. All right. I got to wait because there's a whole series of things that I got to do. So how's your holiday season going? <laughs> We're, they're trying to do something here, which is, it's going to work really great. We've got a fantastic team and they're, they're working on something and... We're going to get there. <laughs> Is there a way we can just go back to Pro Presenter? Is that possible? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can I go now? Okay. So, you know where I was? Okay. All right. Uh, I'm not clicking. Would you click me? I may not be plugged in. I have no idea. Just click me, okay? And just follow with me. So, it, so it's Christmas time. So this is one of the images. You can think about Jesus, the baby that comes in the crib and, and that sort of a thing. Am I clicking now? Hey, here, here's another one. This is not really one that I think a lot of people would think about here. This isn't the kind of um, representation of what they would think. But I tell you what, you go back to the Midwest and you see this in all kinds of houses, don't you? See what I mean? And this is very much, when they think of Jesus, it's kind of, if I can say this, and I don't mean this derogatorily at all, it's kind of a Methodist way of thinking of Jesus. That's how I think of this picture, okay? And I don't mean that in a bad way. They just kind of have this image, and they're all over the houses back there, okay? And, and here's another one. This is a little more sort of almost real, you know, where it's kind of the penetrating eyes, and the, you know, there's just something to the face, and so on. Or, or maybe you've got this one right here, which is, you know, that crown, and, and that whole look, and so on. I, I'm going to show you one that I found yesterday that I have to tell you, this may become my favorite picture ever in history. Uh, this is... The Shroud of Turin using modern techniques of taking from the photographic image that's in that shroud and doing this. And, and you can say, oh, the shroud I thought was disproved and so on. I've actually done a couple of different sermons on it. You can do a lot of research too. Count me in those that believes increasingly so that there's no other explanation than what it's Jesus. Just because of the science of it. Just the more you learn about it, the more you study it the more you get to there. And when you see that particular image that comes out only by most modern technologies, can we get it to come out? There's no way to create it with paint and so on. But when it comes out, it actually looks craggier than this, but think about it. 
excuse me, but in that shroud image, he's actually been dead for three days. And so there's a certain, uh, the skin loses its form. It loses its fullness. It loses blood. It sits back. And so he looks actually older in the shroud image. But if you were to take, again, if you were to take an image like that, a person dead three days, and use modern techniques and say, what's the face look like today? That's that. That's what that shroud image looks like. So I don't know about you, but that's poignant for me in this season in particular, but always. But, but let's go on. Here's another one. Is it that kind of an image that Jesus is ministering and that he loves people, that he's working with the kids, that he's doing that kind of thing? Is it maybe this kind of an image that Jesus is ministering to people? And, make, and I know that these are kind of a little hokey, maybe. So again, what I'm going after is, is when you think of Christ, do you think of him? You see what I mean? What's the image that would come out of how you think? When you think about him, do you think about him ministering all the time? Is that what you think of? Or do you think about something, you know, that he's with his disciples a lot and doing that kind of a thing? Is that the kind of image that would, that would speak the spirit of what you're thinking in your mind? Or does it go to something like this, which is really schmaltzy? But I don't know how to representation, do you do a painting of representation of Christ caring for the whole earth? You see what I mean? So, again, schmaltzy image, but how do you do that? You know, how do you do a cool image of Christ caring for the world? Uh, of course, there's always some people that are going to have this kind of an image in their head. Whenever they think of Christ, this is the predominant image that's going to be in their mind. And, and it's a great one, and particularly for what we're doing today, because what this image means is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that image doesn't speak love to somebody who doesn't know Christ. To somebody who knows what Christ has done for them, what he took upon himself, that we should not have to take it upon ourselves. There's no more image of love, I think, possible. This is God taking upon himself our choices, our, the consequences of our decisions. So that's a powerful image. And, and I want to say something about all of these images. If you really get behind the behind all the images, what you're going to find is, is that all of them speak love in some way, don't they? Even ones like this. All of them have as a sort of primary emotive thing, if you know him, love. And interestingly, if you don't know him, the same is true. Almost all the images that people that don't know him would have in their minds when they think about Christ would at some point in time, if you were to boil it and reduce it down, it would come to an emotion that has to do primarily with love. And after all, that is the way it ought to be because, as Jesus said, God is love. Not as John said, but God said it through him. I want to propose to you that when we think about what that primary emotion is, what that thing is that's in us about all these images, that there is one sort of emotive state that didn't come into anybody's mind. And that is that he's dangerous. And I don't mean dangerous in the way an atheist like Richard Dawkins would say it. You know what I mean? He's dangerous because to believe in him is a fallacy and so on. And, and I don't even mean dangerous in the way that we've been talking about in Revelation as the soon and coming king who comes and there is wrath. I don't mean dangerous in that way. I mean a whole different way. I mean when you think about Jesus, do you think about him as being dangerous? to your life right now. Not without love. 
I don't mean dangerous as in, yeah, I always thought of God as being slapping me on the, you know, or again, not the disparage, but a sort of Catholic nun wrapping you on the, on the knuckles kind of a deal. I don't mean that kind of dangerous. I mean, I mean this. I don't think that we can understand the depths of God's love for us unless we understand how truly dangerous Jesus is to us. I don't think we can get what he's really about. I don't think we can get what God is really trying to do through him. So with that in mind, that's where we're headed today. And we got Michael Weber. This is so cool. And here's why this is so cool. How many were here Monday for the concert? How many thought the concert Monday was an amazing blow away? Woo woo. I mean, just absolutely incredible. And Michael Weber, that was all his doing. I told him, Michael, we can't get anybody to come to the concerts. So this is going to be all on you, brother. If you want to do it, it's all on you. And he took the financial risk of getting this band here. And God met him, I think, right? So that he came out okay on it. And what an experience you blessed us with, brother, by what you did, because that was amazing. So thank you, Michael. Would you pray for the sermon? Lift up another church, too. So, loving Father, thank you for your goodness to this church, its body. Um, I just ask that you fill Kurt this morning, that you speak to us through him. Um, and I also want to lift up Brenton Christian Center down in Fairwood, um, that you bless uh, Pastor Olson and that body as well, um, and Wildfire Student Ministries. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Michael. I know he loves doing that. <laughs> When we think about old times, we do this thing that's almost you know, unavoidable. We, do, we make this little sort of adjustment in our thinking. I'm going to show you a, an old time, this is just a clip, it's just a newsreel or a, just a, a movie clip from its 1896, I think it is. I want you to see this and I, I just want you to, to see, okay, here, this is Herald Square, New York City, 1896. And, and look at the people that are walking around. Look what they look like, how they move, you know. I, I just, right? This is kind of, you know, like a Buster Keaton film or a Charlie Chaplin film with kind of stutter and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and just, this is, what, this is what people looked like, right? I mean, that's what they look like. Well, that's not what they look like at all. This is a really poor camera doing a really bad job of capturing full color. See, they didn't live in a black and white world. When we see black and white, and we see it kind of choppy and kind of like dated and all that kind of stuff, I think that there's this tendency in us to kind of think, yeah, well, people back then, it was just more simple back then. You know what I mean? People were just more, it wasn't as complex. It wasn't, metaphorically, rich like all the colors. See? But they didn't live in a black and white world. They lived in a full-on, full-color world, didn't they? And, and when we think about it being more simple, you know I mean? Leave it to Beaver. It was just more simple then, right? Well, you want to know, know how complicated life can be? Go 400 years before us, 300 years before that camera, and read some Shakespeare. You want to know how complicated life was? <laughs> 400 years ago, I want to make an argument to you. I think that 2,000 years ago, life was much more complicated than it is today. I think that today, we're actually fairly protected, and we can be a lot less complicated. 
I just want you to, I want to propose something to you. The nature of life when Jesus was living demanded that people be more discerning than they are today. If we make a mistake and, and get some heist or con man or, you know, shuckster or whatever, if, if we go fall in for something, we might lose some money and that kind of stuff. You realize that, that people in that day and age had to be incredibly good discerners of people because of, there wasn't good laws out there. There wasn't protections. There wasn't this kind of a thing. That what there was was the brutal force of Rome. And then there was, you know, the, the cultural norms, which did help some, but not with nearly the reach or the complexity. Again, I want to say something about America, which just blows me away. Every time I go around the world, there's one thing I'm always struck with when I get back to America. I pull up to a stop sign at 2 o'clock in the morning, and there's a stoplight, and there's nobody on the road, and I wait until it's green. You know, in broad daylight, nobody in the world waits for green. The stoplights are just there. They don't mean anything, and nobody pays any attention to them. Just try and drive in Europe, and Europe is sophisticated. You see what I'm saying? I mean, there's just, when you go back, now take, it to the, take that metaphor and take it to the way that people had to be. When you had to think, I, I, let me propose something to you. Not, not good Christmas topic here, but it'll get us to the point, so hang in there with me. I want you to think about a prostitute. Sorry. But I want you to think about, you know, today's prostitution has a lot to do with drugs and people whacked out of their minds. That wasn't what it was back then. It was a way of making money and to survive and so on. And it was a desperate thing. And it was one of the ways that women could make a living. And, and I don't mean to make that a normal thing because it was still incredibly disparaged. And because of that, you understand that prostitutes, particularly if they're not all whacked out on drugs, are actually incredibly good discerners of human nature, aren't they? Because they know how people can put on a good public face. But late at night, be very, very different. Aren't, don't they? They know that intimately. L literally, right? So it's interesting to me that a woman who would be such a strong discerner of the intent, the, the nature, the character of the people that she meets, somebody who's naturally wary, naturally careful, would do this with Christ. A certain immoral from a city heard that he was eating and she brought an ex beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt behind him at his feet weeping and her tears fell on her feet and she wiped them off with her hair. And in a moment, this is a woman who has been, who has seen the worst things in life. And suddenly someone comes who is hope because he's pure. She knows the difference between pure and impure. She knows hypocritical. She knows facades. She sees him and what she sees is holy, true, the way it's supposed to be. Not all this other stuff. And this moment right here testifies to his character and his nature in a very powerful way. But we can go much deeper than that. I'll tell you who's more discerning than a prostitute, I believe. Not necessarily, but just by the nature of the job that on average they're going to be. I think the most discerning people in that period of time, I'm going to argue with you, needed to be tax collectors. And the reason why was because tax collectors lived on the, they, they were playing both sides of the fence. 
And the Romans hated him and the Jews hated him. Everybody hated a tax collector. But now understand what Rome did was they would come and they would say, we're, we're, we're going to collect X. Who wants to collect X for us of the Jews? And certain Jews had to step up and say, I'll collect that much money. Now, you can imagine a lot of people would like to do that because you can take a little bit more. What they did, the Romans said, we want this much. However much else you get, that's yours. So this is a way to make a lot of money. So you can imagine that the people that got the contract from the Romans had to be incredibly insightful about human nature, didn't they? Because they had to know this guy has a lot of integrity, so I can't ply him with prostitutes and, and bribery and things like this. I, can pl I have to apply him in another way. This guy, he's a rotten, immoral guy. I have to give him all these pleasures and do all. You know, what is it going to take for me to curry the favor in order to get the contract, in order to get to be able to do this thing? So you have to be an incredibly astute judge of the Roman nature. But you have to be an incredibly astute judge of the Jewish nature too because the Jews hate you. <laughs> You're an instrument of Rome to take from in a brutal fashion by the Roman iron fist to give to the Roman Empire. You had to do it in such a way as that people, you didn't extract, you had to know exactly how much you could extract before they would kill you <laughs> because you were just a jerk. Because you were a terrible person. Think about how alone a tax collector is. Who are his friends? Only people that are trying to get something from him. See what I mean? This guy's already compromised his soul just to be in the business he's in. You, you catch what I'm saying? This has to be an incredibly astute judge of character. And you do realize that one of the four people that talked about Jesus' life was a tax collector. And after Jesus had died, after living with him for three years, after spending all of that time with him, this is the testimony that that tax collector wanted you and I to hear about the man Christ. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you think that Matthew for a second would have written those words, despite the fact that they were true historically? Do you think that Matthew would have ever written those words if he knew that Jesus was like so many leaders today, in fact, all leaders today? There's a lot of people that mean well and don't necessarily always live up to everything that they'd hoped they had. But nonetheless, they're good enough leaders that people follow them and they'll sacrifice to follow them. I, I, I want to be really careful here, but I'm that kind of a leader. People will give up things to follow me, but anybody who's ever followed me for a while knows I'm deeply flawed. There's a lot of issues there. And can I say, I'm not unlike every other leader in truth. Has anybody ever led under somebody that they would have said about them this kind of a story and told it is true? Because everybody's got their issues, right? Everybody's got their little things that make them, they mean well. I got it. I got to remember what he means, not what he actually does sometimes. How could John with a straight face tell this story? about Jesus being baptized, immediately coming up from the water, and behold, the heavens are open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Holy God, testifying that he is pleased with Christ. Matthew, after having lived with him intimately for three years, now comes back and says, that testimony about Christ I know to be true, and so I relate it to you. Do you understand? See, I mean, when Jesus, look, can I say something? I don't think any of us, 
any of us have relationships with other people in our lives besides our spouse and our children that is as close as Jesus had with his disciples. Because, see, they're, they're traveling together for lengthy periods of time. They're, they're eating, sleeping, ministering, doing from, from 24-7. From the minute you wake up and, and you know, you're, in this, you're sleeping in the same room, you know what they're like at night, you know what they're like in the morning, you know how they wake up, you know when they need their cup of coffee, you know the cards. Right? It's, it's like, if, if I had to do an analogy, it'd be like being in a fraternity. Right? Or a sorority, or just living in a house with a bunch of other people. You live with them for three years, how well do you know them? Do you? <laughs> I mean, you do, right? You know that there's good things about them and there's other stuff. And you work through the other stuff and you enjoy the good stuff, right? How many of the roommates that you have ever had or the frat brothers or the sorority sisters, how many of the people who have been deeply integrated, and I mean more, deeply integrated, in fact, let me just take it all the way, how many of you, your spouses or your children could say about you, He never sinned, never deceived anyone, ever. <laughs> That's Peter. Do you remember who Peter is? He's a fisherman. This is a guy. This is a guy's guy. Okay, he knows human nature. He comes from Galilee. You know, we're not, we, he gets it. Here's John, a young man who I believe was the, I believe he knew Jesus better than any human being ever, probably has. And here's John's testimony about Jesus. There is no sin in him. I think this is extraordinary. This testimony of people who are incredibly discerning. Give a, do you remember something? When they make a testimony about having no sin, do you remember, it's not only not to their gain, it's to their harm that they make that testimony. See, there's nobody of the disciples that joined Jesus because they could become, in the back of their mind, I could become a televangelist. I could get a big fundraising arm that would bring in all kinds of money, and I could get a big house out of this and a nice jet and extravagant vacations and, you know, all this stuff. Right? I'm sorry, that just brings up an image in my mind. I remember a, a girl who I actually talked to who was working in, in the Roberts house, and I don't mean to, but they had closets filled with the same kind of suit. I mean, like a hundred of the same kind of suit that had never been worn. But God forgive us. These disciples weren't looking at that. What they were looking at was, you know how we have welfare and we have emergency rooms and we have, like if you want to be mobile, if you want to leave Bellevue, you can go somewhere else and you can be reasonably assumed that you, know, you get a job and that there's a social network there. There's a safety net for you, right? We, we know that because of our government. You realize that the social safety net in that day and age was your community, your little village. Because everybody knew each other and they cared for each other from birth to death. But if you went to another city, you were a stranger and you did not have the benefits of that stuff. It was too expensive. They couldn't afford it. Neither can we, but they couldn't. See what I'm saying? And so the point is, these guys were leaving all of the benefits that they had. And then they went with him. 
And after he had died, their testimony about him was. There was no sin in him. And because they said that, they were persecuted even more by the entire culture of the Jewish nation. And ultimately, as they went out into the countries, they were actually all but one of them brutally crucified, murdered, pulled apart by horses, crucified upside down. There was all kinds of stuff that happened to them. Terrible, terrible deaths because they kept this testimony. How many people could say that about you? <laughs> Is there anybody in here that would have even one person that lived with them very closely? I mean, if people don't know you very well, they can say really nice things about you. <laughs> if they know you really well, they can say even nicer things about you. But if you ask them to be honest, they'll say the other stuff too. Because the even nicer things are true, but so is the other stuff about all of us. Here's how Jesus is. This is unique, by the way. I'm not going to go into great depth on it. This is unique to any religious leader in all of history. Feel free. Check me on this. Jesus is the only religious leader who ever said this. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? He's having a debate with the Pharisees. They know him. They know his family. They know all of his friends. They know everybody that he's hung out with and everything else. And what they're saying is, which of you can accuse me of any sin, period? People have the hubris to make this kind of claim every once in a while. Religious leaders, Buddha, Muhammad, go through it. Go look at it. Okay, they're not talking about, they may be talking about a sinlessness at one point, but they would never say about the whole of their life that they were sinless. And yet this is precisely the claim that Jesus is making. Tell me the sin I've done. Ever. From birth till now, tell me. There was a guy, some of you are old enough to remember this, there was a guy who had the, who had the temerity to do this. It's unbelievable what politicians think they can get away with. It blows my mind. And I'm not referring to a modern candidate, by the way. I don't have no idea. That'll, be, that'll come out as time goes on. But there was a candidate, Gary Hart, who was running at one point in time. And you remember what he did? He said, I am. I'm, I'm this good guy. You think I'm not? You, you follow me. And they did, and they found him. <laughs> That's not his wife in the picture. <laughs> Let me say something. It doesn't make Jesus dangerous that he was sinless. It doesn't. It makes him different. <laughs> really different. But it doesn't make him dangerous. That by every evidence that we could ever muster, we can genuinely demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ was indeed truly sinless. But that doesn't make him dangerous. Not to us. Not really. It makes him a little more dangerous if he comes along and says this, as obedient children, let yourself be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I'm holy, so you be holy. Now that's starting to get a little more dangerous, right? Because it's one thing for him to be dangerous, it's another thing for him to tell us to be dangerous. In fact, it even gets a little bit more when Jesus said, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. What's the cross? Really simple, selfishness. Our own agendas, our own choices, our own ways. If you refuse to lay all that down, if you refuse to not lay down everything that besets, and we'll get into the other side later, but if you refuse to lay down, if you, you refuse to lay down everything that besets, I'm not saying this right. Here's what I mean. We have to take up our cross daily, and that means stop sinning. And he's saying, if you don't do that, you're not worthy of me. Now, that gets kind of scary. Because any, everybody in here has already admitted that not only were they a sinner at one point in time, but they are still in some degree 
capable of doing it again and likely will before they die. So, uh-oh. Now that starts to get scary, but let me tell you what's, that gets scary, but let me tell you what's dangerous about it. The people that encountered Christ and learned about his holiness wanted to become holy. Think about it in your natural mind. You don't want to become holy. There's all kinds of pleasures out there that are good and they feel good and they're fun. You don't want to become holy. And yet, when these disciples met him, something in them said, there's something better. And I want to become holy. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and most of us in this room have met him, and there's a thing that goes off inside of us too that says, I want to be holy. Does everybody in here agree? Do you want to be holy? Raise your hands if you do. If you don't raise your hands, uh-oh. <laughs> do you get the point? There's something in Christ and the holiness that he exhibited that is so beautiful. Going back to the woman that's so pure. That seems so possible that you go, I want that life. I don't want this other one. I want that life. And I'm telling you, ponder for a moment how truly dangerous it is for you to live a truly holy life to everything that you currently are. Everything that's inside of you that is not him, gone. That's dangerous. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying it's really dangerous. <laughs> it's not that pablum, all easy stuff. Think about this, though. When we're talking about this kind of holiness that Christ had, it isn't just not doing stuff. It's also being something else. See, Jesus comes along and he makes this incredible statement, which is he says, I've come down from heaven to do the will of my Father sent me, not to do my own will. Now, we've already seen that to some degree that means not doing sin, but all of a sudden it also means doing God's will. In fact, the way he says it in another place is, and the one who sent me is with me, he's not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. I won't ask for a show of hands in here because I just don't want to embarrass us that much. Is there anybody who can say that they always do, that the only thing they do is what pleases him? Can I say something? Again, I need to be a little careful when I say this so I'm not misunderstood. I, you guys know me well enough. I think that I, I'm okay to say this. But I think if you know me pretty well, you know something about me. I truly desire that, and I actually think I fulfill it fairly well. I, I, you know, that doesn't mean I'm not capable of doing really stupid things or, or of having moments that are not pleasing to God or pleasing to the other person, okay? I've already said I, I do that. 
But what I'm saying is, is that when, when you're not talking, when you're just going on the do side, it is my heart's desire to only do what pleases him. It is my heart's desire to live that way. And as I say that, you can't imagine the number of things that are running through my head that are not that. <laughs> and yet I think I, I, think I do on a, if we're grading on the curve, right? I think I'm Okay. But there's another layer to this that I can tell you right now, I don't even want this. It's not true because I really do want it, but that's just how far away I am from it. When we're not just talking about not doing the wrong thing, but we're talking about doing the thing, being the thing that God wants us to be, you do understand that what he means is, is that Jesus was this. The fruit of the Spirit produces this kind of fruit, love, Joy, peace, patience. Don't we all say, you know, don't pray for patience. God, it's so hard on you. And I always think that that's really stupid because wouldn't it be incredible to genuinely be completely patient? Any, I'm sure there are some people who temperamentally are built to be fairly patient. But wouldn't it be great to be at the level to where at all times you were godly patient? Seven times 70 and then some? kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You do understand that when people looked at Christ, it wasn't that he didn't do certain things that made them think that he was good. That just made them think that he wasn't bad. The thing that made them think that he was good was this. They saw a man living a life is there one thing on there that anybody in here doesn't want to be? Wouldn't you love to be all of that? And not just be that, but godly be that? I mean, to the depths of what those words were supposed to be communicating, wouldn't it be incredible to be all of those things all the time? Wouldn't, can I just say something? Let's just get really real here. Can you imagine if just one person in 10 in the world manifested those things to, let's say, 75%. How different would the world be if just one person in 10 manifested that in a pretty demonstrable way? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That would completely change the world. And it would make people think that going after Again, I want to be careful. We are the lobsters in the pot that are absolutely being boiled to death right now. In the culture right now is a vulgarity and an sinfulness and an evilness and a, and a greediness. It's the exact opposite of all of these things. Self-desire. And I mean, we are on fire. And, and because, you know, we've got there slowly, we don't really get how on fire even we are. Because we can look at the culture and say, my God, your lusts are consuming you. But they're consuming us too. Instead of being consumed with love and with joy and with peace and with patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, I think it's very interesting that I can name you the nine gifts of the Spirit without having to turn around the gifts of power, 
I can name those to you without having to turn around and read them. And I cannot name you these ones without having to turn around and read them. I could fumble my way through and probably find them. But why isn't that on the tip of my tongue? Why isn't this the thing I'm shooting for? Because it's pretty clear to me that that's what he's telling me to shoot for. <laughs> it's pretty clear to me that he's telling me that that's what I should look like if I'm genuinely filled with the Spirit. Right? <laughs> wow. This is dangerous to me. Because it means giving up not just things that aren't good for me. It means really becoming something that I'm not. And, and laying down some things I don't think are sinful before the Lord, but they're not pleasing to Him. Right? This is dangerous. I'm just going to go to one more level, okay? I just want to go one more place because I think that this is, I think that this neatly ties up in a bow and the thing that makes understanding Jesus dangerous as being dangerous so important to us. That takes it all the way home because it's important not to sin and it's important to become who you can become in Christ. We need to become dangerous to the world. How many of you would love Love to when somebody is sick, cancer, they're going to die. And you've prayed and you believe it's God's will that they should not die. How many of you would like to be able to lay hands on them or pray for them in another fashion, but pray for them and see them be healed completely every time? How many of you would want that? I want that. I got some really deep personal reasons for wanting that really badly. How many of you would say, you know what? Let's just start with 75%. 75, that's pretty high based on where we are. Let's go to 50%. How about 25? How about 10%? How many of you would love it if at least 10% of the time that you laid hands on someone to see them get healed, they got healed? Now, can I tell you something? I'm not going down below 10%, and the reason why is because I actually think that's about where we are. I do th we do see healings here. We're not saying that there's none, because at some point in time, we'd have to say, maybe we just got it wrong. The truth is, we see enough healings to know that it's real, it's true, it's God, it is for today, and the problem is, there's a difference between the 10% we're experiencing and the 100% that Jesus did. And I really want to be careful here because I want you to understand something. Jesus can heal through the biggest sinner ever, period. You've got to understand, it's not about your sinlessness nor your holiness. It's about faithfulness. It's about faith, right? It's about understanding who he really is and entering into who he really is. That's true. And I don't want anybody to miss it in what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say is, is just ponder for a moment, would you please? That our holiness has something to do with the reason why we're at 
There is a correlation there. It doesn't mean if we become holy, we'll necessarily become 100%. What I'm saying is, is that there is a correlation there. Even the demons, when they run into Jesus in the temple or in the, in the synagogue, why are you interfering with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> These guys know where his authority comes from. Or maybe put it another way. It's not that that's, his authority doesn't come from being holy. Holy is what keeps him in his authority. Do you see it? It's already there. But what keeps you in it? A story about me. You know that I go for my walks, and I love my walks. And you're going to find out why, you know, again, today. I love my walks. So I go on my, and that, that my walks are, you know, I go on my walk. And what I've been doing lately, which has really been working great, is I start out on my walk, and then at some point in time I remember to do soap, and so I open up my phone, and wherever I am on my walk, by the way, here's why I walk. It's a really spiritual reason. If I close my eyes and sit, I'll fall asleep. Okay? So a really holy reason why I go on my walk. I do it so I don't fall asleep. Okay? So now I'm on my walk, and then I'll remember, and I'll read this passage, and during my walk as I'm with God, I'll read his word, and I'll think about his word, and I'll soap it in my mind, and I'll go through it, because I can access it right from my phone off of our website, as I've showed you, and, and I read that passage, and then I read, I'll, I usually will pray out for the Old Testament one, and then I'll get to the New Testament one, and I'll pray that, and that is usually very relevant to the things I'm praying about that are in my life. It just makes this really, really rich time. Now, you know how important this is to me, and I've been doing this forever. There is something else that's important to me that I haven't been doing for quite a few years, and that's keeping in shape. That should be obvious. And so I started running about six months ago because running was the one exercise I ever did in ever in my life. I did it for about six, seven years straight, and I was, I got runner's high, okay? I mean, you know, I was like, my addictions work for me, okay? And you know what I mean? I was addicted to running, and I loved running, and every morning I'd wake up, and I couldn't wait to go running, and then I'd go running, and I felt better because I ran, and it was great. And I finally decided, you know, if I've never found another kind of exercise that works, and running did work, why don't I just run until the runner's high comes back, and then I'll want to run. And then I'll be in better shape, and that would be a good thing. Well, you know, I coupled that with my prayer walk because I'm outside. Well, the problem is, you know, that's another 40 minutes. I don't know about you, but 40 minutes is incredibly precious when you're... May I say something, by the way? The, the amount of time that I work, I will never hold that up as a brag. I will never hold it up as a breath. It is a sin how hard I work. I mean that. I am not following God. I don't know where I'm not following him yet. I haven't figured out because of the, the loss and the reasons why I do. But I'm praying about it and I'm working at it. And I know that I need to back off to where a run is no big deal and a prayer for three hours is no big deal. Right? It's just following God. That's what it is. And he's got a beautiful life laid out for us. It's full of love and peace, and joy, and faithfulness, and goodness, and whatever those other ones were. <laughs> Self-control, I do remember that one. <laughs> Always remember the ones you really have to struggle with. So because it was adding this extra time, and because my days just got really rich, the week before the week I was off for Thanksgiving, and the week after, which would have been two weeks ago now, I just didn't have the time to get out there. And so I not only didn't get out there for my run, I didn't get out there for my walk. Now, I didn't do it for a week, and then I did it for a week when I was on vacation. Oh, it was glorious. But I was in a, and then I didn't do it the next week, and that would have been not this week up to this sermon. Thankfully, I did get out. But it was last week, and I want to tell you something. By the end of the week, here's what happened. 
I found myself in a couple of really big ministry situations at the end of the week. After a week of not having been in God's presence every morning as is normal for me. And I'm telling you, I could feel myself out of the sweet spot. I could feel myself out of the place of anointing, out of this, this place, this, this place. When, I, when I've prayed up, when I've spent my time in devotional, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm right in the middle of a, if like a bullseye. You know what I mean? And there's different realms. And when I'm right in the middle of the bullseye, it doesn't matter what's coming at me from where it's coming at me. I feel very much like God's in control and that he's got me and that I'm okay and that what I'm doing and I feel him move. And when I see him move, I know what he's doing and I can participate in it and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And boy, I feel like God can be so effective when I'm in my sweet spot, right? But last week, at the end of this week, I, I had this almost out-of-body experience. I'm watching God move through me in the ministry situations because he needed to. But I know I'm not there. And I'm just kind of holding on, praying that it doesn't go poorly. Because I'm not there. And, and not all, of, a lot of really good things happen. Let me make it clear. God will move through the jackass, right? But the bottom line is, is that I don't want to be there. I know better. I want to be in the sweet spot. I want to be in that place where it's there. And here's the truth of it now. My sweet spot, there's still a really big bullseye or a really smaller bullseye to be had. I am quite confident that if I really find another level of his presence and pursue that, that I will come into a place in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the Heavenly Father, I will come to another place that will make the sweet spot that I now experience feel like I'm just holding on with my fingernails. Can I ask you a question? Does it bother you that I push so hard? It says Christmas for heaven's sakes. Lighten up. Tell us God loves us. <laughs> right? I mean, baby in a manger. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> right? I mean, trust me. I think about this stuff. You know what I mean? And I go, God, you know, I don't want to, you know. But, but, but here's what my problem is. This is, a, this is a prayer. This is not the prayer that I pray, nor the prayer that anybody in here prays, but you'll get it as the metaphor. I, ju I just want us to process that, that, that really, where we live is in some degree of this wonderful prayer unto God. Now listen to a very spiritual prayer here. Benevolent and easygoing God. That should be your first clue right there. <laughs> we have occasionally been guilty of errors of judgment. We have lived under the deprivations of heredity and disadvantages of environment. God, surely you understand how my mom and my dad were. God, surely you understand the, the nature of the situation in which I grew up and the way that that person hurt me and the hurts that I have. And surely I get to live and you understand my hurts and you let me live in those hurts. We have sometimes failed to act in accordance with common sense. We have done the best we could in the circumstances and have been careful not to exhort, ignore, not the word of God, but the common standards of decency. And we are glad to think that we are fairly normal. O thou, O Lord, 
Deal lightly with our infrequent lapses. Be thine own sweet self with those who admit they are not perfect, according to the unlimited tolerance which we have a right to expect from you. And grant us as an indulgent parent that we may hereafter continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. Amen. Now, if you go to this church, <laughs> that's not your prayer. Because <laughs> you just couldn't stick. <laughs> but I'm telling you, we're still praying that prayer. And I don't know what to do because I so want to stand up here and tell you that God loves you because I know that he does. And I know that he does more than any of us have ever even begun to imagine. I think the issue is to some degree is we don't understand what that love means. Because what I'm trying to tell you today and what I think God wants to tell us today is that that love is dangerous to you. He's trying to take it to another level. You remember last week in the play, the famous line from Aslan, from, from the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, but the famous moment that somebody has about Aslan, and they ask, is he safe? And the guy says, is he safe? Of course not. <laughs> He's not safe at all. But he is good. And I think that God wants to bring us a Christmas present. I think he wants to give us a new hope for genuinely living a holy life, meaning a life that is truly sinless. I think he's trying to bring us a new hope for a life that is filled with the fruit of the Spirit in, in ways that are contentment in us and completely attractional to people outside. I think he's trying to bring us into a kind of life that is filled with a power that is not the kind of power the world understands. It is a kind of power that is beautiful, that is gorgeous, that meets every need 100%, 100% of the time. That's the Christmas gift that I think God is trying to give us. And I think what we do, the reason why we don't appropriate, the reason why we don't open that gift and own it is because we have compromised ourselves according to the prayer in some degree. And we've come to a place of equilibrium, we think. When the truth is what God is saying to all of us all the time is, I don't want you to get into works. I don't want you to beat yourself up. I don't want you to do anything like that. I want you to do one thing. I want you to come to me and ask me to make you sinless. I don't just mean because I covered you in my blood. I mean that you no longer do any sin. And I want you to come and ask me to fill you with the fruit of the Spirit so that you walk in it completely. And I want to take you to a place to where you are being used by me in what I have already called you to be. That will be the most magnificent place you've ever seen. It'll be everything that you ever hoped that life could be. Now, I think that's a pretty good Christmas present. So, Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this body comes before your throne and asks you for exactly these things. Make us holy 
cause us to not sin. Show us what we're doing, what we're, what we're believing, what we're acting, what we're doing that is causing us to go into sin, that is having us to be there. And God, get that out of us. We don't care how much it costs us. If it rips every layer of skin off of us, God, get down to the heart of it and get us to the place where we no longer sin, period. We are asking you for this, God, knowing that we cannot get there ourselves, but knowing that you can get us there. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we ask you that we would enter into the very fullness of fruit, the very the love and the peace and the joy and the long-suffering, all of it, that in Jesus' name, God, that we would become every one of those things in a way that was actually us just naturally us, fully, completely, gorgeously us. And that God, as you have anointed and called, that being in that place, being able now to be your fine instrument for your will, that you would move through us to make us dangerous to the world. To bring people to the incredible you to come to know the best present ever. God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we reach down in front of us and we, we pick up these two cups. And we pick up this first cup knowing that in it is that bread, and that top cup, and we take that bread and we know that we have broken our lives. And so we take that, it's the bottom cup, excuse me, and you take that and we take our fingers and we just press it in there and we break it and we say, God, that through, for a million reasons, we have broken our lives. And you came to make them whole, to heal, gloriously heal. God, make us whole as we take this healing. In Jesus' precious and holy name, take this cup. And now, God, we lift up this cup in which is the blood, and in the blood is the life. And this is the life that you have for us, the one that has no sin, the one that is filled with the fruit, the one that is empowered utterly. And in Jesus' holy and precious name, we God, we say, we want that life. We are asking you, Lord, for that life to become our life. We do so counting the cost, knowing that it will be incredibly dangerous, that it'll be transforming, that it'll make a huge difference in us. We do it not knowing fully the cost because we cannot know the depths of our own depravity and our own ineffectiveness. But God, we know that that's where you're trying to bring us. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we raise this cup with the hope, with the knowledge that it is your will for us. And we take this life that your life may become ours. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, Lord. Your will be done. We know we have what we ask because we ask according to his will. Ushers, could you come forward for an offering? May I make something clear? Thank you. May I make something clear? Uh, when we do plays, and we do something, it was, hopefully it was fun, it's different, it's good outreach, it's all the things that it is, but it costs us. 
when, you know, we just, you know, we've got a short month with December coming up and everything else, and we're not in a position to take the kind of hit that we could be taking here. So I'm just asking you, I know you've got other priorities and other things, but I'm asking you, tithes, please, please, don't be led by just being here and being moved. Be led by the fact that God has called us to something and that we step up into it every time in faithfulness. And there is one more thing that I need to do. And again, we, we jettisoned it last week, and there was a cost to me personally on doing this. But I need to go ahead, Michael. Yeah. So uh, one of the things we do each year at Christmas is a special gift for our staff and pastors, a Christmas bonus, if you will. And so we want to make people aware. We want to try to bless them for what they do to serve us throughout the year, both in just keeping the building running, keeping the office running, and, of course, ministering to us uh, pastorally, either individually and as a congregation. So I'd invite you to participate uh, this week, and sort of next Sunday is the last chance. Uh, we also can uh, have a staff gift option now set up on the website, so if you want to do it electronically, you can do that. But as we participate in the offering, we uh, invite you to, to join in with us in the staff gift this year. Thank you. God in my living, there in my breathing, God in my walking, God in my sleeping, God in my resting, there in my working, God in my thinking, God in my spirit. 